Welcome to Cinema Duel, a podcast where myself, John, and my friend Chris talk about a couple of movies around a theme of our choosing. Chris, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, John. We took a little bit of time off, so uh, I'm afraid I'm going to be a little rusty. Plus, it is like 97 degrees here in New York today. So that may or may not have any bearing on my performance for this episode. <laughs> well, uh, let's see here. It is currently, let me convert this to uh, Fahrenheit for my American friends here, 72. So today is a bit of a cooler one. But yes, we've uh, gone through similar heat waves. And uh, between getting shots and changes in, in life and work, it, it, it kind of feels like life just sort of decided to push podcasting out of the way for a little while. And, uh, you know, those things happen. I don't think we I don't even think we planned or talked about it. it just sort of happened and here we are a couple months later but uh it's good to be back and uh i'm uh, i'm hoping that uh the movies we talk about today are going to be some some fun ones to talk about um this uh i believe this uh this one was my choice and uh, i decided to go with heist movies um a lot of my thinking around choosing heist movies uh tie into the uh, t- uh, tie into my selection or my specific movie that I wanted to pick, uh, mostly because of the chaos of life. I wanted something that was uh, a little bit more breezy and light, uh, lighter fare. Um, though obviously, uh, heist movies can get uh, uh, fairly uh, go the opposite way uh, for sure. Um, but something that was perhaps a bit less heady, a bit less, uh, you know trying esoteric and stuff just something that we can like watch have a good time forget our troubles and uh yeah that's sort of my impetus i guess for picking uh, heist movies this time around chris any particular thoughts on heist movies before we get started yeah i mean i i think it's a great theme for the summer months because to your point even though we really kind of picked the, the the pair that we picked to talk about one one i think really encapsulates what you're talking about and really fits the theme of hey it's hot you know, I don't want to get bogged down with too much seriousness. I want to have fun and just kind of fall into the rhythms and patterns of something that's as established as the heist movie. Um, one certainly fits that bill. One might be slightly more serious, but I, I, I still think, um, at least for me, really fits that bill as well. Um, the thing that I'll just mention, we had been talking about this before when we were talking about our recommendations. This really, the genesis of this really was, uh, gotta thank just how wonderful the Criterion channel is because, they just have some gems uh, when it comes to movie selections. And there was one movie that I was super excited about had come on. Um, and we will talk about it a little bit more in the recommendations. But I was really hot on this film, keyword there. Uh, so I watched it, told you about it. You watched it, I think enjoyed it. And then we were like, oh, you know what? Let's do heist films as a theme. Um, so we'll talk about that later. But I really think it's one of those it's one of those tried and true genres that over time you kind of know the rhythms and the patterns of what makes a really good heist film. So if it, if, if the film you're watching does nothing but adhere to those pieces, you can kind of turn your brain off and really just marvel at the mechanics. It becomes kind of like a Rube Goldberg contraption where you just see how each piece hits another piece and then causes this to happen and causes that to happen. Um, but that being said, even though it could be predictable and it could be something that you can kind of turn your brain off, as we'll see in both of these examples, I think. There's a lot of nuance. There's a lot of style going on. Um, really uh, enough to spare to, we could probably do this multiple times a year and talk about different films with different tones and different styles, but all kind of touch on the same thing. So a, a, a great theme, one I would have chosen myself if you hadn't done it already, John. Well, that's, uh, that's very kind. And uh, why don't we use that opportunity and that good feeling uh, to launch into our first movie uh, for the tonight, which is Chris's Choice. Okay, so my pick is really one of the progenitors of the genre, and that is the 1950 film, The Asphalt Jungle. Uh, this is a combination kind of heist film noir, uh, directed by the great, great John Huston, uh, based on the 1949 novel of the same name by W.R. Burnett, who was a consultant on, on the film. This is 
just one of those classics of the genre. It's a classic noir. Um, it has some incredible standout performances. Stars Sterling Hayden um, as the hooligan, uh, the heavy Dix, Dix Hanley, who um, is at the center of this heist that's going to try to be pulled out. Um, it features a really early performance by Marilyn Monroe, and you can see immediately, even though she's in very few scenes and is really very much a side player here, um, you can see that thing that everyone else saw that turned her into the star that, that she is. Um, so really quick, I'll, I'll just briefly kind of talk about, um, what the film is about. Um, it's, it's very much, again, it's a, it, it's, it's an old fashioned heist film. Um, it's also very much a film noir in, in the tone and the style and the desperation and, um, and, and, lack of salvation for the characters. So it, it plays in those things really nicely, but really what this is about is, um, an old time, um, criminal mastermind. Uh, this guy, uh, doc Riedenschneider, uh, air doctor is this, um, mastermind recently released from prison, but before he went into prison, he had this great idea for a heist that could potentially net a couple of million dollars in uh, jewels. Uh, so it's about him coming out of prison. And just like any other heist film, this is a film about him collecting the players to pull off the heist. It is then about the heist and it's about the fallout of what happens after the heist concludes. So really, I mean, it, it, it's hard to define this in any other way except for it's a heist movie. So it, it, it's very much about the people that he picks. It's about the police who are, who are trying to stop it or are trying to solve the case after it happens. But what really makes this film unique is not only does it play and, and really set up a lot of the rules that would be followed and imitated years after years, it really puts a focus on the players and the double crosses and what happens and how things like this tend to fall apart. Um, like I said, it, it is all about who these people are as people before they're picked, what happens, and then the fallout after the the, the heist. It, it's really just as simple as that. Um, but like everything John Huston does, you can't just distill it to its, its simple plot points. The guy is a master director. We're talking about you know, the person who did the Maltese Falcon, the person who did the Af African Queen. This is a guy who knows his business. And this is a really interesting film for him to do in 1950 for MGM, which was not known for this type of film. You think film noir, you think heist, you think of um, Warner Brothers, and you think of RKO. You don't think of MGM, which is really heavily known for at this time musicals. Um, but it's a really kind of um, dark and twisted Double cross after double cross, uh, movie with a killer performance by Sterling Hayden. So, John, without going too much more into details from a point of view, a summary, I wanted to ask you, um, I'm not sure if you had seen this film before, um, but I wanted to know how it played for you because it, it, it is very much, I think to me, it's just a heist film. It doesn't try to do anything more because at the time in 1950, it's still a fairly new genre. So just the setup of it is what the movie is about. So how did it play for you coming to it after I'm going to assume having seen so many other heist films um, that were made after it? What did it do for you? And can we, uh, can we agree tacitly at the beginning of this podcast that um, whether you like him or not, Sterling Hayden's is a film presence in this movie. Yeah. Let's, I mean, I, I, I liked it and it was, and it was fun to sort of see things that I had like plot elements and sort of the, you know, the getting out of prison, the, the assembling of the team, the, 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 the actual pulling of the job. And of course the, the fallout, like that, uh, to see that pulled off in, to see those elements that you recognize going back um, as as far as you do, it's like, oh, this is something that, I mean, to be honest, uh, like one of the things that I drew me to Kurosawa when I started watching them was like, oh, I've seen movies that have more or less ripped off Kurosawa or heavily borrowed from him in, in, this, in this sort of... Uh, seeing it in the, that context like oh i've seen movies like this but that were influenced by it and coming back and sort of seeing some of the progenitors was uh was really cool and and, and again i'm not gonna 
claim scholarly insight as to whether this was the first, but it seems like it's, you know, it, the, these kinds of ideas going back, existing at least in this context was fun to see. And of course, I think the film is, is pulled off fairly well. You, you wanted to ask about Sterling Hayden, that, that man looks like you could <laughs> like light a match off. You could, you could spark a fire just like against his, by putting something against his face. Like he's just pure, like he's still something. That, yeah. He, he is it, all granite and rock. It's, it's, it feels like you're like, like, you know, in the iron giant, the pitch for the iron giant is what if a gun realized it was a gun and didn't want to be a gun anymore. This feels like what if a henchman decided that he had hopes and dreams and you're asked to be followed this tough as nails hard son of a bitch and be like what he wants to do in life mostly is to go by go get his old parents farm and like and retire they're they're both asking for us to like root for him sympathetically but also he just not even from necessarily his demeanor or behavior uh but just the way his face looks he just looks like someone you don't want to fuck with <laughs> don't bone him do not bone him john absolutely like getting not. boned i was just gonna say it's a it's an he's he is he is like carved out of granite he's this huge monstrous person he's this massive presence um and i i i think one of the best things that this movie does is it plays into that very heavily but he is a smart enough actor that there are these little glimpses, there are these little twitches that he gives, there's these little expressions that he makes throughout the throughout the movie that makes you realize as as carved out of granite and as stone-like as he is in his demeanor and in his role as he is the hooligan, he is the henchman that is hired to be the muscle for this job. Um that there is something more out there. It may be so singular in his mind that he kind of has embellished it to the point where it really doesn't actually make sense. This going to a farm that's been out of his family now for years and he can't afford to buy back, but he doesn't care because that's what his mind remembers. So that's what he clings to. And uh, I, I, I think it's a great, it's a great performance that another tough guy might not have been able to pull off like he does. Yeah, like the 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 I mean <laughs> I guess we'll probably talk about the like what I how this actually goes for everyone because I think it's important to like to the structure of these kind of movies, the the fallout side of things, but you know, fall the fallout from heist movies often ends up quite poorly like that's that's the like some of them, i mean if we're talking about like a movie like heat for example which is one of my i mean we've i've mentioned it i think yeah. i mentioned it on the uh melville episode uh if as a recommendation briefly but like the 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 big heist is the middle of the movie and then of course the the, the conclusion is sort of like everyone's scrambling for cover and you know all more or less mostly dying in the process um the very the similar to this movie yeah yeah <laughs> that 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 actually once once i was able to um once i sort of grokked that i was like oh wow this is this is this is the actual uh genesis of those of those kind of things where the you know, we're going to watch everyone scatter afterwards and to sort of see the fallout of who double crosses who and how that all goes. One of the things I do really like about it is after everything goes wrong. And again, this is not only a heist, it's a film noir. So film noir, typically at the end, there's not a lot of salvation for anybody. And, and I think everyone kind of comes to their end here. Um, it is really fascinating to see each of the characters and what happens to each of them and, and how those small moments play out, whether they get away with it, whether they die, whether they go to jail or whether they're able to escape. And, um, uh, there's, there's just a, there, there's probably not a lot to talk about as far as actual plot mechanics, uh, because it is just what it is. The team is assembled. The heist goes forward. There's some fallout because the explosion is too loud and the cops come running, so they have to make an escape. They each try to escape and go their own way. There are various double crosses. One of the things I wanted to ask you about too, John, was the look of the film. That That's one of the things that really struck me with The Asphalt Jungle, and I had read a little bit about it. Um, having been so used to so many movies of the 30s and 40s where it's very um, studio staged and it's uh, maybe the cameras are not as mobile uh, back then. One of the things I loved about this movie is how um, 
how live it is, how on location it is, uh, particularly the opening. The opening is the, the opening and the closing are two of the most striking moments in the film. The opening is um, Sterling Hayden Dick's kind of um, on the lamb from there was like a hold up the night before and he's trying to get to safety um, hold up in his buddy's diner. Uh, for some safety and he's being chased by, by the cops and you see him on location, just kind of walking through the architecture of the city and hiding behind pillars as the cars go back and forth. Um, Houston supposedly took a lot of inspiration from the neo-realist films of Italy. Um, uh, Rome open city was a big inspiration from him and it was fascinating to see how the camera moves, how he uses location, how everything isn't just tied to what is obviously a constructed stage on like the MGM lot. Um, did, did, did that play for you at all throughout out the film? And, and just what were your thoughts just around the execution of the film as opposed to just the general plot of the film? Uh, I mean, I don't know how much I can really elaborate on what you said, but yeah, that, that I definitely caught. Uh, I definitely caught that uh, specifically um, the the movement and the location style of things. And to your point, you mentioned about using you're used to, you know, sound stages and constructed stuff on a, a backlot or something. That is definitely um, my impression of sort of Hollywood produced movies of the era. So there, there's a lot of care into sort of how the shots are composed and um, uh, and again, the movement and the, and the location help to give it sort of a like we're give this a feel of like effort and a feel of craft and care, which I was, uh, I, I can't say that I've done super deep focus into John Houston's, uh, the rest of his work. I've probably seen one or two here and there, but it definitely was like, Oh, this is definitely someone who, you know, absolutely knows what they're doing when it comes to that kind of stuff. So it was, it yeah. was, it was definitely appreciated. Um, in a lot of cases, I end up watching movies twice, and it was about halfway through the second time uh, when I was watching it actually today, earlier today, where I realized, wait a minute, that's Marilyn Monroe. Yes. Um, I and because I think that I'm used to Marilyn Monroe as um, just just being, you know, of an age where I was obviously born uh, much after she left us. And, you know, it was never really uh it was not something I got to really experience in any of her, in any of her prime. But like, when you think of Marilyn Monroe, you think of, you know, mega superstar, just all of the attention and all the care. And if you, and actually when I was pulling up letterbox for this movie, the poster was Marilyn Monroe all over the poster. It was a, it was a <laughs> painting poster. And it was Marilyn Monroe. And I was like, really? Like she's barely in this movie. It's, it's, it, it was kind of a whiplash thing to see her, just be an a young actor in a movie and doing yeah. what she and, and and you know you I think you're right of course she she played her part capably and she's definitely catching attention uh um but it was not this is not her movie she's she's a she's a hired actress to uh to do the stuff that she needs to do but uh uh but the 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 movie star qualities that you think of when you think of her aren't um, or the, the attention and the focus and sort of the gravity that she would develop uh, at the height of her powers aren't aren't really there. To your point, like this is one of her earliest films. This is one of the films that kind of drove people to see her and start to cast her in other things. Um, but she's definitely not the main focus of this movie. But <clears throat> I would argue that when she's on screen with Emmerich, um, she's kind of captivating to, she is certainly captivating to look at. Um, when yeah. you compare her to the other women in the movie, right? You have Dahl, um, Jean Hagen, uh, who is beautiful, but it's playing a very different character. She's playing the, the woman who's in love with Dick's, um, Sterling Hayden's character. And she's kind of the, she's not the femme fatale, obviously, but she's the, she's the female lead here. She, she, she's the one who's trying to, um, get Dick's to live and, 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 and help him through the ordeal. And then you have Emmerich's wife, who's played as kind of an older invalid, um, who he's obviously having an affair with Marilyn Monroe on. Um, she is kind of positioned as the blonde bombshell, as the sex bomb. Um, but it's very understated here. It, it's not using her image in the film. 
right? Which I think happens much later in a lot of her film choices. This is just using her as a beautiful actress. And the story, I don't know if this is true or not, goes that she was auditioning for Houston. Houston wasn't 100% sure if he was into her or not. Was like, you know, you know, I'm, I'm not sure. And she turned to leave and he watched her walk away. And watching her walk away was what convinced him, oh, I need to cast her. Uh, because I can't take my eyes off of her walking away. Now, you can interpret that however you want, but it makes me think back to the Asphalt Jungle when she's playing around with uh, Uncle Lon, who is Emmerich, and, oh. uh, <laughs> and he says, which is, look, <laughs> yeah, it, it's a weird, twisted, I'm not going to comment on their relationship. It does seem to be consenting, but there's a moment where she where he tells her just to go to bed, and you see her stand up, and the camera follows her as she stands up and walks down a hallway and goes to bed. And she perfectly um, – and that's why I think she's a better actress than a lot of people take her for. I mean, you can say that this was stage direction. You can say what it was. But she knows how to get up, walk a room, realize that every eye and every camera is trained on her, go into the room – look wistfully and then close that door in such a way that you continue to see her up until the very last crack of that door closes. Um, and I think it's a stunning moment as an introduction to a career that is going to burn incredibly brightly for a very short amount of time, unfortunately. So I, I really enjoy her presence in here, even though I've, I'm very much in the field of like, she's completely not essential to the plot. <laughs> she very much is. She's, she's the girlfriend that provides an alibi. That alibi gets ruined. She doesn't really have any, um, she doesn't really have any agency in the film, but she yeah, makes she's literally a presence. Just a plot device, yeah. Yeah. She, she, she makes a presence. Um, Emmerich, on the other hand, who you mentioned as well, um, piece like what a what a glorious piece of shit like yeah <laughs> I, if, if i if we're making the heat comparison i want i want to call it's it, it's these they're different classes of characters so it doesn't work on that way but like the way that when you watch heat like the word wayne grow becomes a curse like you just like fucking wayne grow and i feel i felt that that just immediate visceral hate for emmerich um at least and 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 that's where i think that marilyn monroe calling him uncle lon actually works to the film's credit where i'm just like this fucking scumbag what, yeah what a piece of shit and he ends up but i think he ends up uh like i think he's fairly compelling as a as the as the as the turncoat as the guy who sort of uh sells everyone out uh, oh extremely i, I he yeah. I, he he, yeah, so he is the crooked lawyer um, who um, his his primary function in the film, like before the events, is he um, he raises the stakes for a lot of the criminal happenings that happen, and, and he takes a cut of that. Um, so he is who they turn to to get funded for this heist job for these jewels, and he doesn't have the money, so he comes up with this plan to have his henchmen fund them. And then he's going to act as the conduit to get the fences, claim that the fences need more time, hold the jewels, and then run off to Europe, you know, or to wherever he's going to go and abscond with all of the diamonds and all of the money. And that plan, that plan backfires. And when it backfires, it backfires spectacularly. <laughs> um, but it doesn't backfire and then, like, he's now screwed. He now has to come up with another plan. Uh, um, someone is killed. He has to dispose of the body. He has to now help the crooks to truly fence it for a pittance of what it was going to be worth before. And then, you know, the whole time the, the cops are swooping in and he has to deal with, with that. Um, yeah, he is a deliciously uh, creepy dirtbag. And uh, the way that the film kind of closes his chapter, uh, again, for a 1950 film is kind of striking. And, uh, you know, I'm, you're used to seeing things like his his ending. He he kills himself uh, because he just can't get out of it. But uh, in, in 1950, those endings were still a little shocking. And one of the things I love about the film and what I try to do when I watch these films is I, I, I'm watching it with kind of the mindset as a person seeing it in the 50s. So even though I've seen tons of movies where people 
have killed themselves because they're in a jam and can't get out. And I've seen hundreds of heist films and crime films after this. Um, I watch it with the eye of somebody who's like, oh, oh my goodness, what's going to happen? Oh my goodness, I can't believe he just killed himself. And, 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 you know, even though it may be somewhat predictable, it, it's, it's the style of how it's done. How do you show and how do you show, not tell? How do you not show because it's 1950 and obviously you can't really show that? Um, it's just, it, it's just a delicious role. He's, he's rightfully one of the leads and, uh, it's, it's still, despite all that, at least John, for me, I still feel a little bad when it ends for him <laughs> because he just was so out of his depth and never realized it at that point. The moment when he's, uh, when he's hiding out at uh, Marilyn Monroe's place and the, the cops show up and Marilyn Monroe's just sort of like naively just like, oh, what's going on? And he just he's just sort of staring off into the distance because he knows that everything's over. Like he's just non-responsive and she's like going up to the door and he's just so you could just see the look in his eye of like, oh God, like figuring out that he's gonna have to, you know, in in his own mind, in his own logic, he's gonna have to, you know, take care of things. It was uh I was like, oh wow, that <laughs> That, that 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 was probably my favorite moment for me, or for me for him from a performance perspective of like oh yeah. wow that he really he really sells that uh well and for her as well and for Marilyn Monroe as well because you have that moment where they're telling her to tell the truth was he with you last night because he he had asked her to lie for him and now she doesn't know what to do and you see the pain on her face of am i supposed to say the truth am i not supposed to say the truth and she's furtively kind of looking at uh, emmerich and emmerich is finally the one to say just just tell them the truth it's fine and she admits it um she is able to have that moment because of how he's feeding her and because of how it it it's set up it's a great role for all of them and it maybe maybe this is a good transition to kind of wrap up the discussion because i think it'll lead really nicely into our next film um this movie works as well as it works because of its casting. You don't get a movie that works this well if you don't have Lewis Calhoun as Emmerich. You don't have Gene Hagen as Dahl. You don't have uh, Marilyn Monroe as, as Angela. And we haven't talked about some of the other players in the heist yet, but one of my favorite people in the movie is James Whitmore as Gus, the hunchbacked uh, getaway driver, which, first of all, they barely make mention of it except for one or two scenes. But why this guy is a hunchback? I don't know, but he's a hunchback. He's a hunchback diner owner who loves cats and is also one of the best getaway drivers in the city. <laughs> and that's this guy's, that's this guy's kind of life in a nutshell. But what, um, James Whitmore does with that, his loyalty to dicks, um, his fury when at the end he is taken to jail and he sees the guy who turned them in. And the way that he literally, this guy, this little guy, little hunchback guy jumps onto the bars to try and grab the Fink Stooley who, uh, you know, ratted them out. Uh, it's a great role. Um, as is, um, Sam Jaffe. Um, I did want to talk about Sam Jaffe. Yeah. I've sure. seen him in a ton of other films and it's escaping me at the moment, but he plays, um, Dr. Reed and Schneider. He plays the mastermind of the whole thing. It, Man, his arc is wonderful and how subtly he plays, maybe not so subtly, you know, the weakness that finally <laughs> gets him at the end. Uh, you, it's set up all the way in the beginning where he's fresh out of prison and he comes into the parlor where he's looking to finance the job and he can't take this his eyes off this calendar of these pretty girls. <laughs> Uh, to, to, to the fact that when the guy walks away and he thinks no one's in the room, he just walks over to the calendar and starts flipping through the pages. Um, and how that one brief, almost comedic moment plays into his downfall at the end is wonderful. I'm glad that you said that because that was one, like, I, again, really like Sam Jaffe in this role. And uh, I'll talk about why in a second. But the way that he gets brought down, at first I was like, this feels like it's a it's trying to pay off something, but I actually didn't clock that uh, that particular reason. I was just like, why does he care about this giving this girl a quarter to play a record? And then when he gets arrested, being like, hmm, I could have left without yeah. playing that, giving the girl to give that money, and I would have been fine. It's because uh, he likes the the ladies, I guess. He likes the um, young girls. But uh, the. Well, okay, maybe I should maybe I should uh slightly uh, temper my uh, praise for him. But no, he I I think as a 
as a, well, as look, a character. Well, look, I'm sure Sam Jaffe is a completely fine and upstanding yeah, person. Yeah, who knows? This is the role let's not, he's let's, playing this is, the this, is not the, this is not the time for us to Google uh, right. personal life sections on Wikipedia. A um, role that I should mention he was nominated for the Academy Award for. Well, he was go. nominated for this movie. I, I think what I what's interesting about his his role in this movie, and especially if we're talking about this movie as a like as a movie that other movies will draw heavily from, is that he's the mastermind of the movie, um, and yet the movie is very clearly positioned from uh, Sterling Hayden's pos- uh, perspective, and so you have. Um, Sam Jaffe comes in as like the mentor, as like the 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 guy who's going to set all this up. He's the genius, but really he sort of functions as like a mentor to our hero, the person we're following. Whereas like when I'm thinking of other heist movies that I'm more familiar with that I'm more experienced with, you're usually like you're usually following the main guy who's who's setting up the whole thing, like Robert De Niro or you know so on and so forth. Like uh, it. Uh, it, it was interesting to see that the the perspective of the movie was actually not the guy running it, but just one of the guys hired to do the job, um, which I think is probably a good place for us to sort of, uh, I think this is probably where I'll, I'll say that uh, we should probably switch to talk about our next movie, which uh, is very much in that um, where the perspective very much is from the, from the leader of the whole, uh, from the whole crew. So Chris, why don't we t- start talking about Ocean's Eleven? Ocean's Eleven is, of course, the 2001 film from director Steven Soderbergh with such luminous cast members as George Clooney, Brad Pitt, Matt Damon, Don Cheadle, Andy Garcia, Bernie Mac, Julia Roberts, and if I keep going, I'm going to run out of breath. The The style, the, the chemistry between the cast is just makes it one of the most eminently watchable movies that uh, that I've ever scene and and then the and for me one of the reasons why this holds a special place in my uh in my heart is be- is just how much i did not see this coming um when this movie before this movie came out of course there were trailers there's advertisements for it and what i perceived was most of the ads were just like here's a list of famous people that are all going to be in this movie and i saw that and i was like well i don't know what this movie is about they don't the, the the trailers and stuff didn't really give you much of a hint about what this movie is just going to be it was literally just hey guess what guys we got brad pitt george clooney etc cetera, etc cetera, all to be in a movie together and i was like well that's fine but why should i care um and i really really had no interest in seeing it uh when the during its theatrical run but it just so happened to be that at the t- um I was hanging out at a friend's house and he invited some of his friends over and we were in high school and there were and the friends he was inviting over were girls and I was really excited. This is fun for me, a, a guy who doesn't do that very often. Um, and I was like, what movie are we watching? Ocean's Eleven? Okay, fine. Who cares? Doesn't matter. I'm just, I'm in a, I'm in a good mood. I'm, I'm seeing, and then I watched the movie and just sort of the Ocean's Eleven experience just sort of washed over me. And I was like, oh, holy shit, this movie is actually amazing. And I and I, and I had completely written it off based on some trailers that I didn't like um, beforehand. But then uh, the after having gone through the whole thing, just being completely stunned into just pure amazement at what I had just seen. Chris, I, I want to, you had told me uh, a story about one of your most recent uh, viewing experiences. And I, and I set up my story because I want to, I want you to tell that story again sure. about watching it with your son. Sure. So um, I'll, I'll just very briefly say, so um, I, I come from, I, I, I saw Ocean's Eleven in the theater, loved it. I was aware of where it was coming from. Obviously, um, it's also based on the 1960 film. This is a very loose remake, and that film does the same thing at the time in 1960. It was a murderer's row. It starred Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr., right? The, 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 the same thing. The idea of getting a huge, stacked murderer's row of actors together to do this type of film. It always had loomed large for me, and I loved it. Um, watching it for the podcast... 
um, I'm always looking for things to introduce my son to. Um, and he's finally starting to get into the habit of like watching stuff that's not just what his friends watch. So he has a particular taste for crime films and heist films and, and, and comedy like that. So we thought Ocean's Eleven would be the, the, the perfect film to introduce him to. Watched it and, um, there's a thing that happens, and I really recommend if you are a parent with, with kids, doing like if, if you love movies, um, don't push your kid, but when you have the opportunity to introduce movies that you love to your children, I wholeheartedly recommend it because what winds up happening is as you watch and as they watch, you start to kind of watch it through their eyes, um, and it brings a whole new perspective to the film. And in this case, in Ocean's Eleven, when the trick is finally pulled and the curtain is lifted and you understand what happened. My son turned, looked at me and just screamed. <laughs> like literally this is a 14 year old kid going through puberty. So his, his, his voice is cracking and shifting. He squealed like he had just seen the Statue of Liberty disappear courtesy of David Cox. Copperfield. It was it was literally a magic trick to him. And like all great magic tricks, like all great heist movies, but it is in the explanation of the trick that draws the biggest reaction. And he is now he's an Oceans fan for life after seeing this movie. Um, I make no bones about it, John. I'll want to kick it back to you because this was your pick, although I am super thankful you, you picked it. Um, we just talked about a movie that I really enjoy, the classic Asphalt Jungle. Um, I really like that movie. I freaking love Ocean's Eleven. <laughs> Unequivocally, uh, it, it is exactly what you said. It is the definition of cool, and we kind of left off with Asphalt Jungle talking about the movie works because of the strength of its cast. That is maybe 50% why Ocean's Eleven works, because the cast is the cast. And not only is the cast the cast, but the cast has probably some of the best chemistry I've ever seen in a film. But that's only half the battle. You have to have a director of vision. You have to have someone who can really pull this off. And Steven Soderbergh pulls this off. He knows exactly what a heist film is. He knows exactly what he wants to do with this movie. He lays on so much style, but the style never overshadows the core components of a phenomenal heist movie. And I think that's what makes this... I'm, I'm going to just go out and say it because it's July, it's hot. Again, I can't be responsible for everything I, I, I say. This might be one of the greatest heist movies of all time. I'm going to throw it out there. I mean, it's certainly like I have you like. I guess we should just briefly touch on it, like because you did mention it's a it's a loose remake. Have you ever watched the original? Like I have. Does it? And it's fine. Yeah, it's pretty much yeah. the same thing. I mean, the stakes are very much upped in this remake because they're stealing from. I mean, I'll leave it to you, but it's essentially the same thing. It's about a guy getting out of prison who has an amazing plan, and he gets the team together and he pulls off a heist and. um it's it's a classic heist movie, uh, but the, the the heist in this question I, I think are three casinos, uh, which I believe in the first one was one casino they were going to steal, which still is daunting in and of itself. But um, the the reasons why they're doing three and how that plays into this movie um, are again it's it's such a singular experience. Um, it doesn't hold the original to my mind, despite the cool factor does not hold a candle to how this movie is executed, uh, which is its biggest yeah. strength. I think, um, yeah, I, I really have no like feelings whatsoever about the, about the original. And I feel like, which, which, which is not, we don't need to dwell on that. It's mostly just to say that like this movie feels like it's sort of leaps and bounds uh, of, of magnitude better. Um, and I think if we're talking about, this movie as a as a heist movie where i kind of the first thing that like comes to my mind as we were talking about how sort of the precedent set by asphalt jungle is that the the fallout of the of the fallout of the heist doesn't really exist in this movie no. um they 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 and and i think that's possibly why it feels so magical is that like whereas you you can I think in Asphalt Jungle, there's some like, 
you know, gray morality and, you know, tragic ending and and all that sort of film noir kinds of stuff that you can be dealing with and and how that relates to there being consequences for uh for everyone's actions, right? And and certainly like the 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 Ocean sequels will deal with the fallout, uh especially Ocean's 12 will deals in the fallout of uh so it's not they they do pick up that thread eventually, but I think that part of the style of this that that we talk about with with Soderbergh is basically just doing the tr- the reveal and then just sort of letting everyone bask in the the afterglow of um of that trick being pulled off like the when everyone's sort of hanging out at the fountains at the Bellagio at the end and you get the the panning shot across all of their faces it's it's literally it's, a magic moment yeah it's it the the catharsis uh hits at levels that i wouldn't have thought possible like you you come away from that going like holy shit that was actually just like breathtaking um well i think that's in part because the movie does a couple things and it, and i think this also speaks to just to compare it again to the asphalt jungle this speaks to the malleability of the genre of the heist film Asphalt Jungle is a film noir that uses heist, that uses the components of the heist as its kind of um, mechanism to get through the story, right? So, of course, it ends bad because a noir film talks about the fallout of bad decisions and what happens. This is not a, this is not a noir film. It's a heist film that is a, a comedy that is a touch of magic. Just like I would, uh, um, you can make a case that like Guardians of the Galaxy has it it's hard to heist it's 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 a bit of heist film um but it doesn't need to bathe in the pathos that film noir heist films do um and i think that's to this this film's credit that it does that but um yet to 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 have that kind of an ending in this film just makes no sense because it's not what this film is trying to do this film is all about the heist it's all about the heist and and playing with the viewer's expectations as to what actually happened and how they're going to pull it off and can they pull it off. And one of the things that this movie does so wonderfully, to your point, like the catharsis, the reason why I think that ending feels as earned as it feels is because so much of this movie builds the stakes to make you want these guys to succeed. It explains why the bad guy that they're stealing from is as bad as he is. It, but beyond that, it's not that, that he's a bad guy. There are obviously personal now stakes involved that you discover throughout the course of the film that makes it even better that they pull the wool over this guy's guys and they get away with what they get away with. So not a lot of films are going to take the time to build those stakes and build it in such a way that you don't even notice it. You, it's, it's completely, and I think maybe this is the best compliment I can give Ocean's Eleven, it's effortless. It's effortless in this execution. Nothing feels forced. Nothing feels weighty. Everything feels like a fresh breeze. Um, and even when there are genuine stakes, like are they going to make it or are they not going to make it, you never really feel like they're not going to make it. And the fact that Soderbergh can make you realize that but not care that you know they're going to make it makes this film a wonder. Well, and especially when we're talking about like the... I mean, again, some of the appeal of a heist film is like how everything gets planned out, how it gets put together. It is very mechanical in that sense. Um, um, and, and for a movie to like, and so yes, it, the, the joy of this movie is that it feels effortless, that you're just watching beautiful people do smart things in fancy clothes. And in Brad Pitt's case, you know, obviously eating all the time. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but the, the way that it is, very the way that the amount of work that has to go into it just to work and then on top of that to seem like they're not doing anything at all is just mind-boggling uh let's let's go uh let's circle back a little bit to talk about elliot gould because in the last handful of years i've become more familiar with like the stuff that he's done but definitely the first time i ever saw elliot gould in a movie was oceans 11 and his and and the way that he sort of luxuriates in every minute of this film that he's in the the way that he sort of sets up the stakes of you know just how dangerous it is to rob a casino just how he like even just the like i'm just going to walk around i'm a you know he's a 
he's a hairy man walking around shirtless and with no fucks to give it is uh it is is just a delight i think elliot i think either yeah i think elliot gould might secretly be my favorite person in this movie i think <laughs> well if, if you've never seen elliot gould before then i mean this is the perfect opportunity to implore you uh to catch a lot of his er- earlier work uh in fact we may have the opportunity to do that with our next episode but uh no he's a a fantastic actor and i i I think although he's amplifying it somewhat for this movie uh the 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 casual kind of tone and and demeanor that he takes here is evident in a lot of his earlier work like see something like the longer um um see something like like mash uh, by Robert Altman, he's fantastic in. Uh, see something like um, uh, the Long Goodbye, uh, where he's e- equally fantastic. Um, and California Split would be Cal- uh, would be my personal California recommendation. Split, for that. yeah, um, something like that. He he's yeah he's a phenomenal actor. Even I mean, as silly as it is to kind of bring this up, his role as Ross and uh, Ross and Monica's dad in Friends uh, is hilarious. Uh, he's able to kind of bring that kind of panache and that kind of that kind of style to everything that he does. He he is a great part. It, it, again, I, I I think you can make a case for almost everyone in this film to kind of have that level of charm. Uh, certainly, Clooney and Brad Pitt might be at their most dashing and charismatic, and their chemistry is it's. I'm hard pressed to find like in this day and age people who have chemistry like George Clooney and Brad Pitt do. Um, I think if we're going to talk weak points like that in the performances, you could argue like as as fun as they are, Scott Kahn and Casey Affleck, they're obviously minor characters in this. They have their moments to play. Um, it took me a long time, and if and if I think there's a weak straw to be had here, it might be Matt Damon for me, um, who. I get what he's doing. It doesn't, it, and, and, and I think it, it works much better in the later films, but in Ocean's Eleven, he's playing kind of the young, eager the puppy. Yeah, the rookie. You're, you're, not that he's the, he's the person by which the character is, by which the audience is kind of looking through, but he's the newbie, even though he's got his skills. And he's the one that his interactions don't ring as assured and as casual as everyone else's do. Yeah, which is probably part of the point, but the reason why you're watching this movie is to watch confident people do cool shit. Yeah, although he has a wonderful exchange with Bernie Mac, which might be one of the most funny moments of the movie. I was going to say, yeah, we should probably shout out Bernie Mac. I mean, what a, what just a fantastic performance and just, I mean, comedian all around, right? Like that, like... It's gone way, it's, it's, way too soon because he is he is fantastic in this movie. Yeah, the 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 whole like every time he says every time I watch this movie and he says the words white jack, I'm just like <laughs> I just die every time. It's so good. And the um and the conversation about uh using lotion and how it interferes with his bedtime activities and <laughs> while he's like crushing the guy the the dealer's hand uh to try and get a lower price. I was like this it is it is an absolute shame that we do not have uh I mean just as a person but just more Bernie Mac performances to sort of uh to draw on and yeah. enjoy. I saw a note uh, that apparently uh, Luke and Owen Wilson were potentially up to for up for the roles uh, uh, taken by Casey Affleck and Scott Kahn. and they I, I guess they didn't do it because they were working on Royal Tenenbaums, which I mean, no, no complaints about Royal Tenenbaums, absolutely. But I, I I do wonder, like it's it's interesting that you mentioned that their mo- roles are minor, like they are, like they don't get a lot of spotlight, but they're sort of they're like as far as as far as the plot goes they're pretty much everywhere they're changing costumes all the time they're always running stuff back and forth but it's always like the but yeah there's not as much um there's not as much stuff that they get to like do other than a little bit of sibling bickering and i'm wondering if we had had like a luke and owen wilson what uh uh what that potentially could have brought just even in terms of you know extra style to 
you know, just rounding at every single member of the cast. I, I wonder though, so I'll, to play devil's advocate, I wonder if they're, because Owen Wilson, uh, currently getting a bit of resurgence because he's in Loki right now and, and he's fantastic in Loki, but he has a very unique style about him. Um, Luke Wilson's a little bit more, uh, I don't want to say, uh, he's a little bit more of a chameleon. Like he can kind of float into a role a little bit more and kind of get a little bit lost. Owen Wilson is to my mind, always Owen Wilson. And I wonder if that style and that sense would work with the other players. I, I think even though Casey Affleck and Scott Kahn, um, are minor in their roles, to your point, they're everywhere throughout it, and they they have to mesh perfectly with the rest of the cast who has the higher kind of level roles, and I think they do that really, really well. I wonder if Owen and Luke Wilson, had they taken those roles, would have had the same ability to do that, to have meshed as well with the rest of the cast and do what was expected of them to carry the those parts of the plot forward. And I, I do like their... The, I, li- I like the, their introduction where uh, where they have the the little RC monster truck race against the real monster truck. Yeah. The, the shot of, especially even just the panning shot of starting in on the monster truck and then pulling out to reveal that it's actually the RC monster truck right up against the big one. Great cinematography, That's... which we should note, uh, Peter Andrews, a.k.a. Soderbergh, is his own cinematographer. So, I mean... If this film looks delicious, you could. It's it's with scenes like that, just the size of scope. To your point, between the two cars, that's all Soderbergh, baby, and and just like a great, you know, heist film and and, and a great kind of Rube Goldberg film. That that scene plays has a key role later on in the actual heist itself. And it just you know you don't know it at the time. It's being played for a very different purpose, just like. Um, in the asphalt jungle, looking at the calendar of the young girls plays a very different purpose. It's played for laughs in, in the beginning, but again, they take that point and they turn it around to make it an integral part of the heist. It's fantastic. I think. I think for me, the 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 when when they have the conversation about um, when Brad Pitt and George Clooney have the conversation about if he's going to go after the money or if he's going to go after Tess and uh, George Clooney says, if it's, if this goes according to plan, I won't have to make that choice. Um, That for me is probably the single biggest payoff of the whole movie. When you realize that the, the drama uh, around Tess is actually built has been accounted for and built into the plot for the whole beginning and that none of this was ever anything but on the rails. It never lost control. Um, it, uh, or again, not without more thinking that I'm willing to do right now, but, uh, but the, the realize that that was always accounted for is probably sort of like, to me, that's the, that's the moment that when it pays off is worth the scream it's worth your your son just absolutely losing his shit yeah and that's you know not to get back to the er- earlier point let me assure you this is not character assassination but that's the magic of this movie because it's so easy to look at this and go you know it's impossible that he could have factored all of that in then to have it boiled down to her making her own decision at the end to wind up being with him but that's 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 movie magic man that's 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 what makes this movie as effervescent and as light as it is. It's that, yeah, he took all of it in, into account and, and it plays out. It plays out wonderfully at the end. It, it's so satisfying to watch a movie that knows what it wants to do and see the, see the results of that plan come to such beautiful fruition in every aspect. Yeah. They get away with the money. Yeah. Tess gets back together with Danny. Yeah. That guy gets his comeuppance. You know, yeah, it all works out at the end. Yeah, they get that beautiful moment as the Bellagio, you know, fountain explodes in, in that Disneyland moment. Uh, it just, uh, it, 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 it just works. I, I, I can't say enough good things about this movie and just the way that it makes you feel afterwards. So for that, I, I mean, and just for the opportunity to have watched this with my son and to, have seen it through his eyes, which I fully admit and will not apologize for. Probably a lot of my rose tinted glasses talking about it now is the fact that I got to, you know, for even the briefest moments, get to see it through the eyes of someone who is 
for whom film is still so new. We forget that when you're 13, 14 years old, you haven't built up the library of films that like people that of my age and your age has. So to see something like this that they've never seen before, it's, 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 it's so new to them. They have no choice but to just kind of absorb it like that. They don't have that jaded history of a thousand and one films that maybe weren't as successful as this film. Um, to fall back on and and it, it it makes this particular film for me personally even more special yeah i've been thinking about uh i've been thinking about when i want to show the kids this one uh, i i think it might wait a couple years but yeah like this is when i'm definitely excited to uh to sit them down and just sort of watch because because especially my oldest is is has the mind to sort of try and piece out and puzzle things through and i can imagine a similar reaction yeah. to that of your son of like <laughs> once once the once the trick gets pulled you're just like oh just brain short circuits and uh you know a, a good time has been had yeah absolutely it's such a joy to do that and i'm sure you've had you know similar experiences with your kids for different movies but there there is <clears throat> not that this is the point of this episode but there is something special about having that connection and having the opportunity to see a film with fresh eyes. It's really hard to be able to do that, especially when you've seen a film multiple times. And I've always liked this film, um, but watching it this way, this time made it, made it more special. And uh, if, if you have the opportunity to do that with any film, um, doesn't even have to be with your kid. Borrow someone else's kid. No, don't don't do that. Please don't do please that. don't take do anyone do else's that. kid. But um, it's certainly easy to sit with someone who maybe hasn't seen something like that before, and uh, you know if they're in into it, be getting that vicarious magic that they're experiencing for the first time seeing a film. It's a wonderful way to uh, watch something like this. So. Let's keep the fun moving right along then, and because I know that uh, for our recommendations where we talk about movies uh, that you should also watch in addition to the main two that we're talking about today, Chris, uh, you wanted to talk about uh, some more Oceans movies, so take it away, my friend. So yeah, I think it makes perfect sense, and uh, this is going to be one where I know I'm probably in the minority, because I think this film got really maligned, but um, Keeping the uh, Oceans uh, world alive for a couple minutes, uh, if you do get a chance to watch Oceans 11 and you want more of that fun, um, I am totally in the bag for the sequel, Oceans 12. I know not a, not a lot of people like it. Um, they definitely don't like it as much as the first one, but man, it, it, it has my heart. Uh, it is much looser, much shaggier. I will say that right off the bat. Uh, for everything that I was arguing about plot holes in Oceans 11, it, no, you're probably going to find them here in Oceans 12. But again, and I think this is even more the case than in the previous film, the plot is not the point of Oceans 12 at all. The, the whole point of Oceans 12 is we love seeing those people interact together so much, let's have them interact again. And man, this movie just looks like a bunch of people who were very rich and very stylish got together and had a freaking party that lasted the duration of the film. And they did it in Europe, no less. So what is Ocean's 12? It's literally Ocean's 11, but it's European. Um, and it's not George Clooney this time. It's really Brad Pitt who's the focal point. And he's masterminding the plot because uh, Benedict A Andy Garcia's character wants his money back and they've got to now go get this stuff. But uh-oh, just like George Clooney had the problem with his girlfriend, his ex-wife in the first one, now we've got to deal with Brad's pit, former flame, but she's the head of Interpol's crime-fighting unit. So what does that mean? I don't care, because it's got Vincent Casal as an amazing <laughs> jewel thief. Uh, it's got Catherine Zeta-Jones, who is probably at her most stunning and charismatic as an actress. Um, and it does something with Julia Roberts that probably everybody else hates, but I unabashedly love, and I can only say this to you um, listening if you're younger and not aware of the huge impact that Julia Roberts had, um, especially back in 2004, where she was ostensibly the most famous actress in the world. Uh, the trick that they do with her only works if you're the most famous actress in the world. So um, this is another one. As soon as we watch Ocean's 11, we watch Ocean's 12 like the next weekend with my son. 
And I said to him, look, going into this, you just need to realize one thing. The woman who's placed Tess, her name is Julia Roberts. And at the time this movie was made, Julia Roberts was probably the biggest actress in the world. And he was like, okay, got it. You watch the movie. And again, when the ending happens and you realize, um, I won't say what, but there is a number of heists that go wrong and then go right and then have tricks. Um, but then there are a couple of other reveals and reversals that happen at the end. And just like last time, uh, we got to one huge reveal that, again, if you're an older viewer, you're going to probably have seen coming for a while. Uh, but just the way that they execute on it, again, Soderbergh is a master of his craft. He executes so well. Again, my son turned around, <laughs> screeched like a young child, uh, because he just couldn't believe that this is how this movie happens. Um, so yeah, look, I'm going to be the first one to say it's not the greatest movie in the world, but man, it is so much fun. It's so loose and shaggy, and that's its charm. Uh, definitely see Ocean's 12. So that's my one recommendation. I got one more to put out because we talked about earlier in the episode, um, uh, we had each watched a film on the Criterion channel uh, that really kind of prefaced us choosing heist films as the theme for the next episode. So if you have the opportunity, I cannot stress enough, go and see the film The Hot Rock. Uh, it's a 1972 film directed by Peter Yates. It stars um, Robert Redford. It's an early performance by George Siegel. Um, probably the biggest thing I, I know that shocked you, John, uh, screenplay by William Goldman. He of The Princess Bride and Butch Cassidy and The Sundance Kid. Biggest for me, it is based on the first Dortmunder novel by Donald E. Westlake, one of my favorite writers. Uh, not as Donald Westlake, but Donald Westlake also wrote under the name Richard Stark, who did all of the Parker novels, one of my favorite crime series of all time, uh, which unfortunately has not gotten a great shake in the movie world. If you've ever seen any of the, adaptations uh, of, of those novels. Please do not seek out the one starring Jason Statham and Jennifer Lopez. It is horrific. Uh, but The Hot Rock is a lot like Ocean's Eleven and Ocean's Twelve, where it's a lot about the planning and the execution of a heist, but what makes this movie so great is the heist goes horribly wrong. And uh, John Dortmunder, the, the character played by Robert Redford now has to engage in crazier and crazier escapades, rescue missions and additional heists in order to make the one heist kind of work out in his favor. And it constantly goes wrong. And every time it goes wrong, it gets even worse. And he's put in increasingly and increasingly bizarre positions and situations that he has to finagle his way out of, which is what all of the Dortmunder novels are about by, by Donald Westlake. Um, there are a couple adaptations. There's a terrible adaptation starring Martin Lawrence and Danny DeVito, uh, which is also based on the Dortmunder novels. But this one is... This has got the caliber. This has got the diamond cast. It's got the diamond screenwriters. It's got the diamond director. Go ahead and search this out. It's really, really fun. Um, maybe not as breezy and silly as the Ocean movies, but man, it, it laugh out loud. It's super stylish, and it's just got some great performance. So um, if you're looking for some more heist films, those are two I very highly recommend. Excellent. Yes, I, I will also... Uh... <clears throat> I also recommend the uh, the hot rock for, hot rock for sure. Um, then thank you, Chris, for for putting that one on my radar. Um, my two recommendations uh, for today are more uh, more recent films. Uh, the first is Inception. I mean, this is a this is kind of basic. I, I think in terms of uh, more recent films, it's probably the most obvious one that people think of when they think of heist movies. Um, <laughs> But just because, I, but but I think if it's a basic choice, it's only because it's it executes so well on sort of the the vision, the idea, like everything does feel like it. It still feels like everything is put together so well that it still still works, even if it's not as inspired a you know revelatory recommendation. Obviously, people have seen Inception; it's been talked about to death. But I still really like it. And I still think it holds as a uh, we're going to go steal a thing and uh, the, the the putting the team together, the execution of the job, how things go wrong, how they try to sort of uh, deal with the fallout of, of everything going on. It's uh, I, I still I still like Inception. Sue me. <laughs> it's Christopher Nolan's The Hot Rock. <laughs> yeah. No, it is. Uh, I, I'm 100 percent with you. It's it's by far my favorite Christopher Nolan film, um, and I can, I I can watch it. 
I can watch it over and over again and not lose kind of the magic of some of those sequences. I, I think it's a fantastic film. Unless this episode sort of in its last few minutes swinging to becoming just a Steven Soderbergh episode, uh, I am uh, going to recommend uh, 2017's Logan Lucky, um, which is, I mean, obviously the fact that it's made by Steven Soderbergh uh, heightens the comparisons to Ocean's Eleven. I feel like if it was someone else making this, then it would be there already. But uh, basically taking the, the heist uh, idea uh, and transplanting it from uh, Las Vegas to uh, West Virginia. Um and where the, and while it still has, I think, the Soderbergh style that you want from this kind of heist movie, it sort of re- re- replaces the, the the glitz and glamour and the, the, the absolute um, <clears throat> beautiful movie stars dressing well and being funny with each other with... Uh, um, with with it's it's more I guess it's more heartfelt. Still beautiful movie stars. They're just dressed yeah. a little bit more shabby. I mean, no one's gonna say Channing yeah. Tatum is not an attractive person. That's true, but but it but it's it 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 still has all of the um it, it's it's more the location is is different. But like even with different, and you, we talked about how essential the cast is to the and the chemistry is, especially when we're talking about the the ocean the later oceans movies that we can't remember to save our lives. Um, <laughs> Uh, but um but with but with a with a cast that similarly works and uh in a di- it feels like he's basically able to able to still pull off the same trick but just without um <clears throat> it, i think it speaks to so- Soderbergh i mean Soderbergh is a really good film director that's not a controversial opinion but like it, it it's night it, it's fun that he can basically pull off a similar kind of trick without relying on as many of the like the 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 stars in your eyes feeling that oceans 11 gives you yeah um that you're you can watch this you know heist uh about a nascar race and still be just as invested you still want all the characters to come out um as on top as you do when you watch the oceans 11 movie so yeah logan Lockie is a lot of fun it's a good time um yeah, I think that's probably going to do it for us tonight, uh, Chris. It's, <laughs> I think, for us worried about being uh, a bit rusty coming off after a couple months off. Uh, I think we actually did uh, fairly well, and of course, it's uh, it's good to connect and uh, to see your beautiful face again. <laughs> well, thank you, sir. I appreciate it. Um, always great talking to you. Uh, we do have a theme picked out for our next episode. So hopefully we won't be waiting a month. We are going to be going back to the noir. Well, um, a little bit, but this time we are going to specifically be looking at neo-noir. So much more recent films, um, tackling, uh, sort of the same subjects, but probably in a very different style because the way things were kind of perceived and addressed in the 40s and the 50s is very different than when you look at stuff in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and beyond. So uh, looking forward to talking to you about that, John, for our next episode. But uh, I think this is as good a spot as any to wrap it up. Absolutely. You take care of yourself. And uh, for anyone listening, uh, take care of yourselves as well. Thanks for listening. Be safe. Take care. Bye.